Alright guys, and welcome to another episode of Hattrick Heroes, and today we're here with Marcus, or Mark, and he's been involved with a charity down in Kenya, in Nairobi specifically, called the Impoverished Children, from a slum called Kibera. Mark, welcome today. Thank um, you very much for having me. You're very welcome. Can you give us a small introduction about yourself, uh, where you're from, what you're currently doing with yourself? Yeah, so I've been in the UAE now for 12 years. I work for Etihad. I'm a pilot for them, captain on the 330 fleet. And uh, I've been involved in uh, charities for a while, actually, or uh, what I like to call humanitarian organizations for quite a while now, before in Bangladesh and now in Kenya. And I've been in the aviation industry for about 15 years. I'm originally from Lebanon, lived my whole life in Montreal, and I found myself in UAE 12 years ago. Nice. And how did you, how did you become involved with the humanitarian organizations? Well, we, what was your drive? Yeah, it's a good question. Actually, uh, we see a lot in the world, as all crew do. And I just found that a lot of the places that I was uh, visiting or interacting with the people that I was interacting with kind of, you know, educated me in different ways. But I've also realized how blessed we are to be what we are and yeah. to have the jobs that we have and the ability to see the world the way we do. And I thought it was really important to give back to whatever we can give back. Um, yeah. So I decided to take that kind of, to have a different drive towards it and to try to help people in whatever way or whatever capacity I can help them. And to understand and explore more about these circumstances people live in and be able to... Was there something specific that attracted you? Like something you saw, something that you mm. noticed that made you think, okay, cool, this is what I'm going to do. Yeah. So uh, that's actually a very easy question because I mean, we go around the world all over the place, be it uh, in certain cities like Manila or even around uh, places in Africa. You see a lot of these children just basically running around uh, without shoes, um, trying to beg for money, and sometimes they get caned um, you know, by police or whoever is taking care of the area there. It's uh, very unfortunate to see that and I just thought to myself, I actually want to go see where these people are living or where they come from to actually yeah, yeah. understand why this circumstance is happening and how people like us who are privileged are able to fix it. Mm -hmm. Or at least not necessarily fix it, but give them the right direction to help themselves fix it. Empowering them and empowering their children to do better and to hopefully not have a continuous future that way for the next generations to come. Now you say you started doing it in, uh, in Bangladesh. Correct. Someone else has spoke to Eva, who's also from Etihad. She mentioned your name, mm -hmm. involvement there. Just quickly, what was your attachment to Bangladesh? Yeah, so Bangladesh ever founded a charity uh, or the organization called um, Choice, to Change. Choice to Change. And I joined her in about maybe three or four months later. I was with her and the team there. There was also another cabin crew called Marius who was with us, who was a cabin yes, manager as well. as well. So yeah, the, the three of us were head, uh, spearheading it. Uh, we got up to about maybe 13 or 12 staff and about 150 children. So it, was, it grew quite quickly over yeah. four years. And that's the time okay. I worked with it. And then I ended up finding uh, impoverished children. So uh, okay. Choice to Change did do well and it was already on its way. And I yeah. really found that I needed to work with something different and something new at that yeah, time. Okay, cool. And that's why I decided to... I found it through Choice to Change, actually, is how I oh, found okay. impoverished so children. So it wasn't like a trip to Nairobi? No, it wasn't. You... It was the uh, founder who is an Australian lady called Catherine. She right. founded uh, Impoverished Children, which runs Shine Academy, where the kids are educated. Yeah. And she reached out to us. We worked a little bit with her. But when I ended up going to visit her, and I visited as well, so we actually both went together. Right. And when I went to visit her and I saw the conditions that they were living in Kibera was way worse than Lalmati's slum, for example, in wow. uh, Bangladesh. And wow. I was like, wow, these people really, really need a lot of help. And already, yeah. Catherine was doing this for about five or six years before. Wow. So she had a lot more experience than we did. Yeah, exactly. Well. See, I don't know, I've never actually been to Nairobi, I've, I've done the, the turnaround, but I've always come back, so oh, I've never right, actually yeah. laid over. It's, it's weird because I don't get this impression of Kenya being like this at all, so um, can you tell me a bit about Kibera? I, I know it's, I've, I've done a bit of research, it's yep. the biggest slum in, in um, Africa. Yep. Can you tell us, tell us a bit about what the conditions are like? 
Yeah, kind of so thing. I'm going to quote Catherine in this. So Catherine is the founder of Impoverished Children slash um, Shine Academy, which is the, the school that is run under Impoverished Children organization. She basically got to uh, South Africa to start her journey, and she wanted to find a place where she could change lives. And she traveled literally from South Africa all the way up into Kenya and stopped there. She traveled for a year before she decided to settle in Kibera and make her school there. Okay. So that's her story. And the reason why she did that in Kibera was because Kibera was the most abhorrent and poorest conditions, the most dangerous conditions she's ever seen anywhere in wow. Africa until that point of one year of traveling with her husband. And that's saying something. It is saying something. And yeah, this wow. is how I would explain Kibera best, is through Catherine's words. Because when she told me that, it actually hit home for me as well. Because what I did see there was much worse in Bangladesh. And mm. I was shocked by it myself, even yeah. though I've seen a lot in Bangladesh as it was. And for her to tell me that, that means, yeah, we are literally in one of the most difficult, toughest places for humanity to actually survive. It's crazy. I mean, yeah. it's basically, as online, there's um, conflicting figures, which obviously means that records aren't kept properly. Yes. Yeah. Between 250,000 and 1 million people. Yes. And I would say the 1 million is much closer. Uh, because when you actually fly over, so now I know where Kibera is, so when I'm flying into Nairobi, I actually look I in the area okay. yeah, yeah. from the flight deck, and yeah. it is absolutely massive. When you are there, you do not, you cannot comprehend its size when you just look at it from a bit of an elevated space. Yeah, you really, okay. really need to actually take it all in. Wow. Um, and it's actually, uh, and, and within Kibera, you have higher level housing and lower level housing as okay. well. The, the, yeah, the yeah. actual, I, I don't like to use the word slum, but I mean, that is the, what it's known as, yeah. but that, that area of, of, of people living in, is it's it's so massive that it actually changes socioeconomically from place to place, yeah, okay, which is okay. really fascinating. You have the extreme yeah. poor of the poor, and then you have the sure. poorer of the poor. The hierarchy type of thing. Yeah, a lot of people uh, do not understand, or they, they, they just assume that poor is poor. But there's actually just like the rich mm. or the well, the middle class to the rich have many yeah. different you know stratifications or many different uh, levels of, of richness. Yeah. the poor do as well, mm. and that's something that you really learn when you actually work with these people. And, and you can walk into Kibera for a bit and then just walk, you know, take a left for two minutes and you go into a whole different zone. Mm -hmm. Completely different, much, much worse and much wow. more difficult to walk in. The smells are much worse because there's also the, obviously the smells of dung and, and urine and all kinds of things. Yeah, that, yeah. It's just, it's much worse kept than the area you were just in before. Yeah. And some places are slightly tarred, some are not. It's all just pure mud and stone. It also changes even infrastructure-wise, not just the poverty level of the people. And it's not the best of in infrastructures, is it? No, it's not. Definitely no. not. When the rains come, it is really difficult, Can I have imagine. to say. I've been there in rains and not also in Bangladesh the same, but Bangladesh, most of the slums tend to be paved there, so they're a bit easier to work oh, with. Where Kibera, it's not. It's yeah, really okay. mud. It's stone. It's just, it's, uh, they, they build houses out of dung, like cow dung, so you can only imagine the smells that come out when it's raining. Uh, wow. it's, it's a very it's different not, situation. Not a healthy kind of, um, no, it's definitely not. Place yeah. to live in it's either. definitely not. Even getting clean water is very difficult. Yeah, well, that's what I was saying. The, um, they used to get their water from a dam, yes. which has typhoid and cholera. Correct. Yeah. But now they say there's two pipes coming in, which I guess is some kind of mm. movement in the right direction, but that costs them money. Yeah, of course, it costs the government money, and the government, of course, does not necessarily prioritize these areas. No electricity, 20% electricity or yep, something like definitely. that? definitely, a lot of candlelight. Uh, the whole thing is pitch black at night, definitely, there's no electricity at all. The electricity that actually exists will be in the more upper-scale, poorer areas like okay. we discussed. Yeah, okay. uh, they would actually take lead lines into their homes and have their TVs and have uh, one bulb in the whole entire kind of shack. Is that the area but, where you'd find the... Um, the owners living, so I believe there's 10% of the places owned by the Kikuru. 
Ah, uh, yeah. Okay, so there's different tribes. So the way that they work would be uh, th there are a few chieftains for the whole area. They run different uh, parts or segmented parts of the quote-unquote slum as a whole. Yeah. And those chieftains are responsible for different people or different tribes in this case. Uh, because okay. in, in, unlike Bangladesh and Africa, you're, it's more of a tribal system. Yeah. They'll be responsible for their tribe. So each chief of every tribe will be responsible for that area where the tribe is. Some would be more poor. Some would be, you know, obviously yeah, uh, okay. richer in the in, in that level. And they would probably have more access to electricity or, uh, so you know, basic functions. Uh, and would they have functions. toilets? Because I believe the majority of the place does not have a toilet I don't system think I've system. ever seen one. No, sewer system definitely does not exist. No. So mm -hmm. within Kibera, the government is taking parts of it. They are demolishing it fully. So n nothing in Kibera, let me just go back here a little bit. Nothing in Kibera Ooh. is owned by anyone. The oh, whole okay. land is government-owned, officially. Uh, so you can never buy a land in Kibera and own it. You can only rent. Right, and you're okay. renting off generally a chieftain who has kind of confiscated this land or the chieftain's office, if you wish, has confiscated this land. And then they just basically, uh, you have to pay them because that's kind of their space. Whatever happens with the government later, I don't know. This is something which yes. might the chieftain might do or whatever. Yeah, okay. But if the government wa wants to come and demolish a whole area of Kibera, they will and they do and they yeah, have. I've, and there's yeah. been riots, there's been a lot of violence because of it. People have died because of it because for them, it's all their land anyway. People do not have the right to live here. Yeah. So what the government does is they'll come in, they'll demolish, and they'll build um, more kind of sustainable housing. Not the best quality, obviously, but their intention is to move these people into these. As time goes on, they're going to progressively build more and more of these so five to six-story buildings. Would you say this is a... I was about to ask the question, do they care, this government? But then you say, okay, is for sustainability, I guess. But would you say that's a caring thing? Would you say it's a... No, it's... it's um, disruptive, it's sort well, of... It's a difficult. Rash. it's a difficult question. It is partially caring. It is disruptive too, because of course, when they demolish, they also build highways, roads, they're oh, building no, saw, infrastructure saw, saw as well. Yeah, this it, happened not too long ago. Yeah, and um, we actually almost lost the school because of it. It was very close to the border of the school. Yeah, it was. It was a big me. thing, and Catherine was very stressed about it. Yeah, yeah I bet. I we bet were discussing so, a lot together in that time. Because I mean, if it's a government of that nature, where it's yeah, you know, you, you look at Africa compared to Europe, the governments are much more than how you would describe it. But they do as they will. Yeah, you know, vote for them doesn't make a difference. Yeah, true. So in regards to the government not really caring about sustainability, that kind of thing. When you said there was a highway put through, and you said it was close to the school, yep. with the children, what do you think goes through their minds when they're seeing this happen? It is, I'm sure, terrifying for the children. I mean, if you just go into the news and you see the pictures from that time, this happened about maybe uh, early on this year, I think it was March or February this year, uh, 2019 that would be. So, the, if you would just go back and see all the, the pictures of the rioting, the fires, the, the fighting against the government forces and all that was happening there. I mean, it is terrifying, of course. It's like mm. literally like those movies that you see if you watch Avatar, for example, where you have this massive bulldozer of this kind of other, other people that will come and just terrorize your land. And you've been there for ages long. Yeah. Obviously, it's not uh, something which is officially your land or you, don't, you haven't bought it and people are coming to destroy that. Well, I understand still, that. But still, you made your home. You live there. Yeah. And it's and they, they will just make a decree. They will just say, okay, this is going to be the zone where the new highway will be, uh, where we have to build our plumbing and infrastructure, which will uh, help out the next city down the line, which is through Kibera, obviously. Mm. We're going to just go through it. And that's it. And there's no ifs, buts, or problems about it. These children, it's this generally a picture of innocence they have no idea that all they see is potentially their school going or they might see their home yeah. just disappear yeah, they'll just see army and bulldozers and then that's it a week later it's all fine and the, and the and school was literally almost in that path and they can't then, do anything yeah they, no they won't they can't and I mean they, they will do that the people will fight uh, of course and they have and there will be deaths and there will be violence but the kids themselves will be suffering of course and, they, and, and what goes through them. your mind when you I was it. extremely upset. I mean, obviously, anyone that works in a charity like this or in an organization like this, like Catherine does, she was extremely upset, very, very stressed for those two weeks. I remember very much when I was talking to her. 
I was very upset because I was imagining, I was remembering these kids' faces and, and what they would be going through. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And we, I think, uh, if remember, Catherine told me there was about six families that were affected by this particularly. Mm. The rest were not. Right. But this can happen anytime again. And, yeah, and the government has said we are going to change Kibera. Kibera will no longer be as it is. We need to continuously work on it. They say we need to work on it for the people to build more sustainable infrastructure to put people in from Kibera. But that does not always happen. It does happen to some degree, but not always fully. Yeah. Because other people that belong to the government or under the government or have voted for the government will also get access to this very cheap low-income housing. Yeah, okay. And they're not part of Kibera. So truthfully, they're not literally building the six-story houses just for those in Kibera. Yes, maybe 20-30%, but it's also for their own people yeah, and their yeah. own extended families and whatever it is that they have. Yeah. They never say that, of course, but that is the reality. I was going to ask, what can be done about the behavior of the governments, their idea of development? Is there other options? Shouldn't they just be saying, we'll move you first and then we'll come through? Yeah, so is moving is, is also another problem because if you want to move people, they don't have the money to move. The so government doesn't have the money? Or the people no, the don't. people don't. No, okay. So yeah. they, they already live in like, you know, dumb built tin sheds, yeah, yeah. constructed sheds, and they, this is something that they built themselves. They don't have the means to buy new material hmm. or to build a new home anywhere. Then yeah. what land are you giving them? Because yeah, yeah. Kiber in itself is already, it's, it's massive. It has, I'm sure it has a million people. We don't really know the numbers between 2,000, 150,000 to a million. But I'm sure it's more towards a million range. A lot of people have said that. Uh, the census has not That's been done properly. It's crazy. It's crazy. It really is. And it's a whole economy on its own. It's a whole system on its own. It's a whole society on its own. Yeah. But it itself is contained. It's all in a lower kind of space. And then you have it like um, all around it is a higher kind of plateau or a higher space. So oh, it's already contained. Okay. Yeah. There's nowhere else to move them. They're going to have to start a whole new quote unquote slum area. But yeah. that's also not acceptable to the government. The government wants to well, fight not. against that. So yeah, what yeah. do you do with these people? You're, yeah. you're basically removing them, but not putting them anywhere else. They don't have the means to build anywhere else, and you're not giving them land. That's compounding the problem. Exactly. So yeah, so the government wants to transform Kibera. That's great. They want to make it better. Perfect. But you need to do it in a way that is sustainable. So you take a space, yeah. you remove people, or you move them out for a while, but you have to give them somewhere else to live safely and you know comfortably. And then after that, you will move them into the structure and not put other people from outside of Kibera into the structure that you no, so it's just making it worse. This yeah, is the way that you do it right. So the government, they're not doing much in regards to looking after people. They're doing their own thing, being a bit cavalier, I guess you might say. Mm -hmm. In regards to their role in, in the community, is there any sort of health things or schooling yeah. that they focus upon at all? So or? the health issue, actually, I'll, I'll discuss the health issue on its own. This is, again, very different from what I had in Bangladesh, is there's actually a very big percentage of people with AIDS or HIV, at least if not AIDS with it fully there in Kibera. So this is another thing which I did not actually uh, experience much in Bangladesh, which really shocked me when it came to this, because when I discussed with Catherine that about 30 to 40 percent of her students are HIV positive, not necessarily having AIDS, but HIV 30%. positive. Yeah, easily, because a lot of the, the parents have it and then they don't so really treat it. And they have, exactly, it's contracted. Not that many things happen to the kids, but they get it through just being born with it. And um, in regards to that, obviously in the Western world, there are ways and means of dealing with HIV, mm -hmm. do they have any kind of access to deal with this? So there are medications that are provided, I believe partially by the government or fully. They don't pay much for that, but the problem is the consistency. Yeah. So there's a massive stigma on AIDS and HIV. So if people know that you have it, you're, gen you're generally stigmatized by the society around okay. you. So everyone's very quiet and private if they know they have it. Right. Otherwise, because of the stigma, they don't actually go research to see if they do have it. They don't get checked properly. No, so see. it just keeps proliferating as time goes on because no yeah. one knows who has what. Okay. For the, those that do know that they have it, they're very private about it, they're very quiet, they will yeah. go get their meds if they care enough about themselves to do so. Yeah. And not every parent is responsible enough to make sure their kids are on their meds for AIDS to not start forming. So this, this is the, the main issue there. As you mentioned before, Catherine, who started this charity, she's, she started off in South Africa and she worked her way up yep. 
to she literally Kenya. traveled all the way through all those countries to, yeah. to get to Kenya and stop there. What was her aim? Was there like a reason she's doing this? I mean, her mission statement is to the aim is to remove a child from from poverty. Can, can you describe what this means to her or mm -hmm. to the children? Yeah, I wish she was here to speak for herself, but I'll yeah, speak yeah, on yeah. her behalf because I know her quite well. So with her, she literally wanted to find, and I'm sorry to use this word, but she wanted to find hell on earth. Yeah. That's, that was her aim. Yeah, she wanted okay. to, to find the worst that she can find, and then she felt that when it was right, she'll stop there. Mm -hmm. And her initial investment was purely hers and her family. So she comes from a family of affluent business people, right. be it her father and her mom and, and all the rest. Okay. Uh, so she initially invested her own money. She's a trained uh, PhD in psychology. So she is a, wow. she's actually a child psychologist, okay. does abnormal psychology and normal psychology. And yeah. uh, that's what's amazing about that is that she already understands that a psychological mind of a human being, yeah. be it a child or being an adult. Right. And she I also see. has a master's in teaching. So okay. that made wow. her absolutely okay. perfect for the situation. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. she had a great job, a great life, everything back in Melbourne. But she's like, you know what? She's from Australia. Yeah, she's from Australia. Yeah, okay. from Melbourne. Okay. She's like, you know what? I've done it all. I've seen it. I've seen as much as I want to see, but I really want to give back now. And my family has done well and I'm very happy with everything. I need mm. to give back. Yes. And that was her decision. Okay. She told her husband, he agreed, and then they both went to South Africa and began moving up. And when she found Kenya, she stopped there and she's like, this wow. is the place I have found what I feel is hell on earth for me. Yeah. And I want to get, I want to find the poorest child I can find, the dirtiest, the most uh, difficult situation that they live in, and the most uh, health-threatening as well. Yeah. And I want to raise them with an educated mindset to get them out of this and then hopefully get yeah. their parents out of this because usually this causes a chain reaction. Yeah, okay. When you build the child up, they will eventually help out the, the family. Yeah, that's why Kibera. <laughs> yeah, okay. And how does she manage to just start a school? That was it? Or did she have to yeah, go and so, do like a proper registration, that kind of thing? Yeah, that's a very good question. Actually, very interesting question. I'll tell you why now. Mm. Uh, basically, she did start a school. She just went in with her Australian kind of teaching mindset and her curriculum from Australia, which was really cool. Not, not ever been seen before there. Very yeah. different. Mm. A lot more on teaching through play and teaching through interaction and okay. kinetic interaction. Kind of thing, yeah. Exactly. Then just yeah. sitting in front of a classroom with teachers and yeah, you yeah, zoning yeah. out as a child yeah. after, you know, 10 seconds or 20 seconds uh, while, you know, being taught on a blackboard. Yeah, yeah. She has that element too, but it's a very minor element. Hers was a very different. So she had to actually train all these teachers to train in a different way. So her okay. requirements were, so she came in, just to get back to your question, she came mm. in, she found a, a, a home and she rented it with a space and then she began, she began from there. So all, her school's always in a concrete type of structure. It's never in a tin or whatever. Oh, so they're coming is. to her home. Yeah, the but they came in her home. Not, not her home, sorry. She went, she always goes to Kibera itself, but she rented oh, uh, a, oh, a home a, in this. Uh, yeah, wow, like an you, upper, again, you. back to that upper scale area. Yeah, it's yeah. an Olympic area in Kibera. It's called Olympic if anybody wants to visit, that's where you go. And that area of the Olympic area of Kibera is on the outskirts. It's not so much deep into the actual slum itself. Mm. It's on the outskirts, which okay. you can access more easily. And that part has more proper construction, like it has uh, buildings made of concrete, etc. Yeah. So she took a building with a whole space around it. The building had, uh, you know, a toilet and a kitchen and a, a bunch of rooms, which became the first classrooms. Okay. And then she went from there, rented it herself, uh, began building it up on her own for the first year, went back home. Then through her different church affiliates and organizations, she began raising money and has been consistently raising money since then. Okay. She usually has one big money raising event every April, I believe it is. Something which with horse racing or whatever the case is, okay. that's where she gets a lot of the bulk of the money for the whole year. Oh, wow. To, okay. to, yeah, to make sure that she can meet all her budget requirements. So the specific things that she puts the money towards, is it towards yeah. the property or is it like rent and so forth? Yeah. Or is it towards yeah. health or paying the teachers? What, anything specific? Yeah, I'll discuss where the money goes in a bit. Before we get into that topic, I want to discuss something more about charities or organizations in general, humanitarian organizations in general, yeah. and how important it is to know where your money is going course, with these yes. types of places. A lot of the big ones, I'm not going to mention names because I don't want to 
be on record with that, but a lot of the big ones have massive administrative fees. A lot of the money that you believe you're giving to these companies via through telephone marketing or if you mm. do it online or if you put it in a little box somewhere in a mall, it ends up going to a lot of the rent of the structures that they need and the offices that they need and the staff that they need to run the organization, okay. which which runs in the other country, yes, but so, uh, like 65 to 70% will go into just running it in the home country that it's from. Yeah. Unlike when you give money to a charity like this or like Choice to Change, it's, more example, it's a lot more direct. Yeah. So whenever we talk about humanitarian organizations ourselves and the ones like us that work in them, our aim is to always have 85% into the actual direct line, if you wish, mm -hmm. and 15% to run. Yeah. Now, going back to your question, how do you go with direct? Direct is school uniforms every year. Yeah. Direct is a lunch program every single day for the children, so they okay. get a proper lunch, okay, cool. which is not easy to do, 120 kids every single day. No. You can only imagine the logistics of that, the, the cooking staff required, and the money to be spent on all the products, yeah. or on all the materials to mm. make for the food. That also goes, of course, to schooling, which is uh, to stationery, to books. Uh, it goes to backpacks, it goes to shoes. A lot of these kids have no shoes when they come to Catherine. It also goes uh, to a bank of medical care. So if anything happens to a child, we need to have a bank of it's money in case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, sometimes they get hit by buses. All kinds of things happen yeah. on the main roads. Or wow. they get cut or they get hurt. Of yeah. course, then there's the whole entire element of the, in this particular case, the HIV, where Catherine has to also take care of the testing, which has to, I think in Kenya, it's actually now free. And most of the medication is free, but that's the that's one thing that the government has done actually quite well there. Yeah. Because okay. a lot of people have it. So there's a lot of investment from the government in that. But there's still some small fees you have to pay here and there to make the whole thing work for you, which she also pays for as well. Mm. And then, of course, some very, very impoverished families will get a bit of aid from Catherine, too. We don't usually okay. give money in these charities directly because we don't know if that money can go to alcohol or to drug abuse or anything else. Right. We tend to give it through food, Maybe bags that, of rice yeah, or bean or whatever the beans or yeah, whatever the case is, whatever the local food is. Yeah. Okay. Um, or clothing. To the parents as well okay so this is really where the money goes of course you have the teacher's salaries you have the rent of the school because you can't buy property there and uh, you have school trips that happen as well usually once oh, okay. a, once a year sometimes yeah, they okay. try to do it once uh, twice a year like once every semester but they don't they can't always afford it so the school trips is another thing to going to like a live safari or different types of things that they may do oh okay kids. i was about to ask yeah, yeah. just uh, outside <laughs> of classroom teaching basically but that's yeah, gotcha. the, the least one that they do because it is a, quite an expense to move all these kids in a bus, move them all back. There's yeah. also a safety element there too. Yeah. And you have to, of course, you know, it's, it's a logistical feat. It's not that easy. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So that's awesome. where all the money comes from. Well, we decided last minute that we're going to leave it there for this episode to give you a chance to contemplate what's been discussed so far. It's quite a difficult topic to listen to considering the health issues and the living conditions of these people, especially what the children have to live with. We did, however, give you a small positive taste of what the organisation are doing in regards to the school itself, but next episode we'll discuss more about this in terms of the teachers, what the curriculum involves, and also about the children. We look forward to having you back for part two of this heartfelt story from Kenya, but in the meantime, Merry Christmas, and uh, seeing as though it's the 30th of December, we'd like to wish you all a Happy New Year, and also a Happy New Decade. Uh, we'll see you again soon.